All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome, everybody. Coaches, 8020 Baseball Masterclass, our weekly get together here. Coach Bo with you. In this week's episode, episode 77, we are going to discuss a strategy that you can implement right away that's going to get your players faster, stronger, and more athletic. And the best news is you can implement this strategy, this training technique, this training method right into another drill or other drills that you're already doing. Second, today in part two, we are going to discuss an article that I read in Baseball America by Matt Eddy. And Matt breaks down in his article called More Precision with Decisions. He talks about what eight young major league players did and benefited from in 2020 to improve their offensive production. There was one commonality, one commonality amongst all eight. And he talks about that. And we're going to break that down here. And that's Matt Eddy's article in Baseball America. And in part three, a coaching strategy that you can use as an operating system at every practice and I truly believe this should be the default setting for all coaches. The default setting, it's very simple to follow, but it does take some time to build and develop this habit. Some of you are closer to it right now. Some of you are a little further away from this, but we're going to discuss that in part three. The 8020baseball.com website is up. It's 8020. The numbers 8020baseball.com up and running. I think I got about 12 articles on there, eight videos already, and I got more ready to go. And each one of them is based around the 80-20 principles, the 80-20 baseball foundation that I think a lot of you are really buying into and you're seeing the value and where I'm coming from with this and the value in all the things that we discuss on our weekly get together here. So go check out 8020baseball.com when you're done listening to this. Just to forewarn you, if you go there and you think you're going to have a thousand pieces of information on that website, it's not. And the main reason, besides time allocation, the main reason is because I truly believe the big needle movers or what we need to get implemented first. And I've been very upfront with that since day one. So get there, check it out, 8020baseball.com. I'm looking forward to building upon where it's at right now. Go check it out. My goal for that has always been to make it a hub, a central location for all you great coaches to go get ideas, to learn and build better systems and be better coaches, win more games, have more fun, develop better human beings, better players, etc. Now for part one, every practice, I'm a big fan of running what I call steel jumps. I line up the players on the line, say the right field line, typically the right field line, or even have one of them at first base and then the rest of them behind, or you could have multiple waves. I don't think you need with a youth team of say 12 players, you don't need more than two waves. At the most, you could have a wave of six and then the next wave comes through of six, of course. I don't think you need to break it down into waves of three. I say a lot of coaches use like three at a time, four at a time, and they have three or four waves. Cut that out. Just do two waves. And so what you're going to do is you have your players on the line. They take their lead. You don't really need to have your players take a lead. They don't really need to mimic a lead. You could have them take that lead and practice it. That's definitely fine. Or you could just have them all start with their left foot on the foul line. And I like that because then when you have a hat or a bat or a bucket or something that or cones even better that they are sprinting and racing to that they are competing to race to when you have that finish line, they're all starting from the same starting point because 
because each player's lead is going to be a little different. Some players can get away with a bigger lead. Some players will have a little bit smaller lead. So what you do is you start them from the same point. And as the coach, you're the pitcher. If you're fortunate enough to coach older players, varsity high school and older, and you have some POs, pitchers only, you can have them do this. The thing is you want the pitcher to be efficient. You want them to go through it realistically, authentically, randomize their pickoffs, not necessarily throwing the ball, of course, but just randomizing that pick move. And you want them to vary their timing, but you also don't want them to dilly dally, get distracted. You want to run this drill through fast. So you have your first wave of runners on the line. They're going off the pitcher and they're doing steel jumps. They're steel jumps, basically just making a break like they're stealing second base. Again, I like to have a cone, a bucket, something out there, something easily accessible, easily and readily available to mark the finish line, typically on both sides of the drill. So you could have one on the infield grass and one on the outfield grass. So both sides of the group that are running both sides, the inside runner and the runners that are on the further outside, the further outfield side can see the finish line and see where they're at. You could do it with one. That's fine. So you have them sprint two thirds of the way. I like two thirds because it gets them to full speed. It gets them some full speed sprints, but they don't all go through the bag and have to work about blowing down because there's not a base for everybody. There's just the one base and yada, yada, yada. I like to go have the players go two thirds of the way with their sprint, their steel jump, and then they shut it down and, and, and kind of shut it down into slow. You could have them also stop too. Another one that is a nice addition to this drill is you could have two sets of cones. You have the finish line cone, and then you have another set of cones that they have to stop by, another line that they have to stop by. This is important because home plate is the only base runners can run right through. All the other bases, well, first base on a ground ball to the infield where they're not trying to round the base, but second base and third base are bases where they need to be able to go hard through the bag and also be able to shut it down and stop on the base, of course. So that's kind of one of those tricky elements with baseball, the finish line being the base, like second base or third base. You have to stop at the finish line. You can't go past it. Now, most of the time there's a slide there on bang, bang plays, on close plays, but you also want your players to be able to go hard to the base and also be able to shut it down and break it down and build some of those brake muscles along the way. So you could do two sets of lines. You could do the finish line and then a secondary line that they need to break it down. You could even have some fun and put some throwdown bases. You could put some throwdown bases and do this in the outfield and have them work on their slides. So you can see where my mind is going with this. You're trying to build up the reps, the quality authentic reps, but you're trying to do it efficiently. So why have a sliding drill? Why not have a steel jumps, reading the pitcher, competition to the finish line, whether that's a, a cone or also to a base, sliding into the base, etc. There's a lot of ways you can do this, but those are the key elements of stealing a base, running, base running, etc. So the key to this is have a pitcher that's authentic, that keeps the varies the looks like a game. I even, when I do this with my players, I even balk. I do a balk move pickoff. Sometimes I don't even stop when I'm pitching. I just run through the stop. I run through the set position. I do things that make it even harder. Again, this goes back to making 40% to 50% of the drill a little more difficult than the game. As a pitcher, I'll run through the stop sign. What they say, run through the stop sign. I won't even come set. I'll come down and I'll do like the 1980s nonstop pitch move. Go watch 80s and 70s pitchers. They're almost all balking by today's rules. Now pitchers are more enforced by the umpires. They have to come set, distinguish that set position before they can pitch to the play. But back in the 70s and 80s, they run right through that all the time. And so they started emphasizing that rule. But that's what I do during the drill. If I'm the coach, if I'm the pitcher, that's what I'm doing with my players. So I like doing it because the coach can mimic a lot of different things. A, a player at that level may not have the wherewithal to implement the strategies that you as a coach kind of see take place or not just say strategies, but the, the method or the, the tactics or the, the movements, the technique of the other team's pitchers. So you can kind of vary it depending on what you've seen in your league, in your area. And also when you're balking and doing some of these like pick moves where you you buckle that front leg a little and then you pick, they call that the balk move, right? Or you do a straight slide step without really even coming set. Those things aren't necessarily 
necessarily things you want to teach your players, your pitchers, your own pitchers. But nevertheless, here's the thing I wanted to get out of this. Here's the main message that's different about what I like to do with this stolen base drill. That stolen base drill right there is a little unique because of the variations that I put into it and that I like to do with my players. I've had a lot of success with, but there's one other part. Yes, there's more. I have my base runners back pedal sprint, back pedal sprint competition back to the foul line, back to the foul line in which they came from. So they finish. I give them just a couple seconds to reset on the line or at the finish line. So they're all lined up and then I have them back pedal sprint. It's a second competition. One thing that happens when coaches train stealing bases and getting steel jumps. I like, I call them steel jumps because when it comes to stealing bases, it's about reading the pitcher and getting a quick jump as much as it is about like top end speed. There are runners that can read the pitcher and get good jumps that aren't always the fastest. You guys all know this. We all know this. So this is training good steel jumps. Now, if you can get a good steel jump and you train your players to get faster, which this does by sprinting backwards, it gets them going faster forward. I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but by training those antagonistic muscles, essentially the quads and the hamstrings and the calves and the shins are, and the glutes and the hips and the pelvis are working. One is working usually to move you forward and, and another set is moving you backwards, pushing you and going in reverse. And so you train both. And this does get you going faster both ways. It also makes players more athletic because there's plays in baseball. We got to go backwards. It just makes a better athlete being able to run in multiple directions, side to side, etc. So you set them up on the line. You got a couple waves. You sprint to the finish line. They go off a, a real pitcher that's going through it, but don't dilly dally. If you're the pitcher, they get to the finish line. You give them a couple seconds. If they're slow, then hey, then you just start without them and that player is going to finish in last. And then you just maybe track who finishes in last or you track the non-hustle. I'm big on this with just the non-hustle players. If there's a non-hustle player, everybody bear curls. That's really big for me. So the competition is kind of built in because they want to finish first. You don't really need to have a reward, an extrinsic reward. <laughs> they want to win. So you make it about like, hey, who's going to finish? Who's getting there first? Who's the fastest? Who you guys all think you're fast? All right, let's see it. Let's see it. Who's the fastest? Who wants to challenge themselves? Who thinks they're underestimated with their speed? Let's see it. Now, one thing that's important to do here is I think you should pair your groups together. So you may have a faster wave and a slower wave. You got to be careful with this. Kids are sensitive these days. I think as coaches, we can desensitize kids by not coddling them too much, right? So it is good though to have them maybe in two sets of waves. You time them at the beginning of the year. You get some sprints. You go, yeah, you're going to be in wave one. You're going to be in wave two when we do these drills. And then you don't make a big deal about it. But the kids know it's fair. You know, you're not getting a speedster with, you know, some players that maybe aren't up to the speed on that. No pun intended. So you have them in your ways. You have them differentiated if you can by ability, sprint ability at the time or not. Just have them all go together. You got to be careful. Some of these kids like to have a little success from time to time. So if they're always just getting blown away, that's something you want some success. You want to build up that confidence with some success. So you have them go, but then you have them back pedal sprint, back pedal sprint, compete going backwards, compete going backwards. That's the part. One thing it gets the players back to the starting point faster than a slow jog. And gosh, if you let your players walk back, Oh man, oh man, we got to go back to square one completely, I guess. You should never have them walking back to the starting point of any drill. Now, you have them backpedal sprint, they get back there faster. So not only are they building those antagonistic muscles in their legs, you're becoming more athletic, learning how to run backwards fast. You're also getting to the next rep faster. So add backpedal sprints to any forward sprints that you're doing. Get that put in right away. Backpedal sprints combined with the forward sprints. Steel jumps is the best way to sprint, right? You go from a running position, a stealing position, which is facing in towards the pitcher. You got to turn, pivot, and then sprint, accelerate, and then have them backpedal back. You can also add some other elements in there 
there where you have them backpedal and then they twist to a forward sprint halfway when you tell them or at a certain point and they got to finish at a sprint. So kind of because in baseball, sometimes they're backpedaling on a fly ball and then they got to turn and run or they got to turn and run and then turn it into a backpedal. So you could have a forward sprint that turns into a backpedal. Maybe an outfielder sprints back and then turns. It just creates athleticism. It's fun for the players. I don't think that's a big deal right there, that last little part. But as you can see, having backpedal sprints added in with the forward sprints is just going to make players more athletic and it doesn't take any more time. In fact, it actually saves time because they're sprinting back to the starting point faster. All right, now part two. So an article that I read by Matt Eddy in Baseball America called More Precision with Decisions. And the, the subtitle is Eight Young Major League Baseball Hitters Who Benefited from Better Swing Decisions, Better Swing Decisions in 2020. Now, we don't even need to go out on a limb and say that not all eight of these players made the same swing adjustments. Not all eight have the same stance. Not all eight have the same rhythm with their hands. Not all eight share a lot of the commonalities with the swing, but there was one commonality that they all shared, and that was better swing decisions. So they all made one common change, and they all had success from it. They all benefited. They all improved. And so just bringing this to the table as an example of how it works, the importance of the hitting approach, and I call it the hitting approach, the hitting plan, plan A, plan two, and then there's plan take, although that's pretty easy to implement because it's just, hey, plan take you're taking it. If you have not yet listened to the podcast episodes where I discuss the hitting approach, you can go to the website. You can see it bulleted out. Each approach, each plan, part A, part two, and part take are bulleted out. They're bulleted out. The article, there's an audio article as an episode. Talk about this in a field manual episode, the hitting approach field manual. What I call the hitting approach is swing decisions. And these eight hitters, Austin Riley of the Braves, Ramel Tapia of the Rockies, Orlando Arcia of the Brewers, Jaimer Candelario of the Tigers, Rowdy Tellez from the Blue Jays, Willie Castro, Clint Frazier, Willie's from the Tigers, Clint obviously on the Yankees, and Trent Grisham of the Padres all had better 2020 seasons at the plate. It was an abbreviated season, sure, but a large enough sample size to see improvement of some sort. And all eight of these players benefited by better swing decisions. And like I said, I can almost 100% guarantee 99.99% guarantee that all eight of these hitters didn't make the exact same swing adjustments, but they definitely swung at better pitches in terms of less than two strikes, swinging at pitches that they could handle, pitches they could drive and do something with rather than hitting weak ground balls for easy outs or getting jammed and hitting easy pop-ups, making easy outs. They're swinging at pitches that challenge the defense, whether that's a rocket ground ball or a solid line drive or a ball off the wall or a ball over the fence, something they can drive and hit hard with less than two strikes. And then with two strikes? Are they swinging and protecting the strike zone, not going down looking? And they also, are they not chasing pitches that are just ridiculously out of the zone, bouncing in the dirt, you know, way up by their shoulders, etc.? The main key piece of information and the point is that better swing decisions is huge, is massive. Biggest needle mover, maybe in the entire game of baseball at the youth level, the biggest needle mover, and maybe at any level. You want to make a hitter have better contact with his swing? He swings at better pitches. He swings at better pitches because like I say in that article that I wrote on 8020baseball.com about the hitting approach, and I was sitting there front and center watching Mike Trout hit, and I saw him swing at a 
split finger fastball from Tanaka that didn't even get to the plate. It bounced in front of the plate. He swung at it, missed it by three or four feet, which is incredible, which is a massive miss for any level, much less Mike Trout. It wasn't about his swing because we all know Mike Trout has a very, very, very good swing. Why did he miss that pitch by three feet? Because he swung at the wrong pitch. So it had nothing to do with the swing. And most of the outs and most of our strikeouts and a lot of things that we do as hitters, a lot of things our hitters do when it comes to not having success is swing decision related. And if you want to get that swing better, the fastest thing you can do is get your players to start swinging at better pitches. Because if it's a better pitch for them to hit, it's going to be easier for them to hit, right? And there was eight young hitters that all improved. They definitely didn't do all the same things with their swings, but they all got better at what? Swing decisions. And the data backs that up. They swung at fewer pitches that were out of the zone. They swung at more pitches in the zone. And guess what? They made more contact. This concept really is so elementary and basic. Get your hitters a swing at better pitches and they're going to have more success and they don't need their swing to be all perfect. You know who needed to get his swing super dialed in was Vladimir Guerrero. Vladimir Guerrero Sr. A lot of you listening to this are around my age and Vladimir Sr. would swing at pitches that were six inches off the plate, above the strike zone, below the strike zone a lot. He hit a lot of low pitches. He'd hit some pitches in, but definitely outside and down. But his swing was so cherried out and so he could get away with that, but he's one in a million. He's one in 10 million types of guys who can just go up there and hit pitches that are six inches outside, get fooled on a breaking ball that's below his knees, barely off the ground and make contact, solid contact. But there's probably a 0% chance that your hitters have as good a swing as Vladimir Guerrero. And so it's so important to have better swing decisions, better swing decisions. And the nice thing is when you teach better swing decisions, it's going to be very similar, very similar in a lot of ways, identical for almost every player because the strike zone is very, the strike zone is the strike zone and the hot zones are going to be very similar. The hot zones, those areas of the strike zone that hitters do damage with. Like I've said before, it's about a third to half of the strike zone, depending on the hitter, might be a little bigger, a little smaller, depending on the skill level of the hitter and the experience, but get them to know that, get them to learn that. Then with two strikes, get them to understand where the strike zone is, give them a lot of reps, give them instant feedback, give them a lot of reps, give them the feedback right away. This would be like the one thing that I would coach up almost every pitch or every other pitch, which is some quick feedback. And when I say quick, I mean, hey, that's a good one to swing at. Good decision. Good decision. Hey, good take. Good take. Little comments like that. Feedback like that. That takes half a second to a second to get across. It gives them feedback. Maybe as a coach, you're sitting behind them and you can see it better. And maybe they're not sure. Maybe they swung at a pitch. You see it in the major leagues. They'll look back at the umpire and go, hey, was that in the zone? Was that a strike? Or was it not? Because they want to kind of know. They want to know, is that a pitch I should have chased? Or is that a pitch I should have let go? So just think of the major league hitters. If they're asking the umpire for feedback on where that pitch was, then as youth players, they're definitely going to want some feedback. So quick feedback, develop a cue system, a system of cueing, a system of quick feedback that lets them know. And also remember praise. It shouldn't always be about, ah, oh, don't, why'd you swing at that? Why'd you don't ask questions? Just say, Hey, that's not your pitch. Hey, that's not a pitch you can hit. All right, get a better pitch, better pitch. Hey, get your pitch next time. Hey, good take, good take on that. That was a good take. That was a pitcher's pitch during the game. Good coaches that I've coached against, good coaches I've coached against that have good approaches at the plate. Their teams have good approaches. Some one of the main commonalities I hear from them is, Hey, good take. And they'll say that on a strike. They'll say that on a strike. A rookie coach or an inexperienced coach or a coach that doesn't understand all this will yell out to their hitter on every strike or if they take a strike that looks decent from the third base coaching box or the first base coaching box or the dugout, they'll, hey, you got to swing. Hey, hey, swing at strikes. Swing at those strikes. Well, that's not a good approach with less than two strikes, just swinging at strikes because that strike zone is big. We've talked about how many square inches that strike zone is. It's hard to handle the entire strike zone. It's hard for hitters to do something well with a pitch if they're trying to cover the entire strike zone, much less outside of the strike zone. 
Part three, praise loud, critique soft. Default setting, coaches, default setting. All coaches should have a default setting of praising loud, giving loud, genuine praise, and critiquing softly. Praise loud, critique soft. That's soft, hey, maybe with an earshot of other players. Hey, that's okay. If you can do it off to the side, even better. Sometimes the efficiency of practice doesn't always allow that, but if you can critique soft and praise loud. Praising loud, critiquing soft. Now, when you critique, that doesn't mean you're not going to be firm with the player. You have to be firm sometimes, but yelling, screaming, I'd leave that off the table. Praise loud, critique soft. So keep that as your default setting. When you're out there at practice, you see something good, praise loud, critique soft. This also has an inherent governor on it. When I mean like a governor, like a a car or a golf cart has a governor on it, right? So you can't go super fast. It By praising loud, you can praise at any time, anywhere to any player. But when you need to critique soft, you have a default setting of critique critiquing softly, then you are less likely to yell across the field to make a point, to critique, to put a player on blast. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this at all, but I recommend reducing it or minimizing it as much as you can. That does not mean you don't critique. You critique, but move. It also gets more steps in. You get more steps in because you got to move around the field. You can't just yell from the dugout. You can't just yell from the bucket. You got to go around and talk. You got to move. So you burn more calories. It also dissuades coaches from just yelling at everything or critiquing everything. Remember, we've talked about critique less, critique less, praise loud, praise often, critique soft, critique less. So there's a couple things in there. When I started using this strategy years ago, one, praising loud and critiquing soft just paid off dividends with the rapport and the connection and the respect from the players. They could tell what I was doing. They saw it and they appreciated it and they responded better to it. The loud praise and they're critiquing softly. I'd get them to the side. Maybe another player heard it. Maybe a couple other players heard it. That's okay. But the whole team didn't hear it. I didn't put them on blast because of a technique issue. If it's a hustle issue, hey, you got to be a little loud on that. All right. You're you're never name calling players. You're never getting personal with it, but you might need to put them on blast for the hustle. That might be something you put them on blast across. But this is more of a, when I say critique, critiquing is a technique thing. Ground fielding, ground balls, they make an error, swing, they they make a mistake. You want to keep it soft. All right. You want to keep it soft. Just going back to the hitting approach. If you're coaching up your hitters like you should be when it comes to the hitting plan, when they take a good pitch, you might say, hey, good take right there. You might say it louder. Good take. That's a pitcher's pitch. Good take because then everybody sees it. They can learn from it, but it also has more impact. That praise has more impact. And with that particular example, when a hitter chases a pitch that they shouldn't have chased, especially with less than two strikes, you could say it a little softer, a little calmer, a little more low key. Make sure they hear it. Make sure they get the message. Be concise with it, but keep it a little softer, a little more low key. I'm telling you, this is a massive ticket to building connections, getting respect and letting your players know and they'll feel that you really do care because it's not all about you. When you praise loud, it's not about you. It's about them. When you critique soft, it's not about how smart you are. They see somebody who doesn't need the spotlight. They see a coach that doesn't need to come across as a know-it-all to the whole team because you're going soft with them. You're telling them in a low-key fashion. You're not broadcasting everybody that you know the right way to coach. You know the right way to play and they don't. They need to fix it. So there's a lot of underlying things here that play into this default setting of praising loud, critiquing soft with the occasional loud when I say occasional every couple practices, depending on how it fits in, the occasional louder, firm message about hustle and focus. And when it comes to praise, do it loud, do it sincerely. And when it comes to critiquing technique or a physical error that a player makes, either lay off it. Don't feel like you need to address every single thing. I've talked about this. This is so important. Don't address every single physical mistake a player makes. Hustle? Yes. Disrespect of another teammate? Yes. Disrespect of a coach? Yes. Address it every time, immediately 
immediately. And it's got to be very clear that that's not acceptable. But when it comes to a physical mistake, ground ball between the legs, a bad throw, base runner gets picked off. Don't feel like you need to address it every single time. I'm not saying you let it go and not address it if there's something that you see as a pattern. I'm looking patterns are what I like to look for. I like to see that a player has a pattern of making the same error. If it's a one-off, lay off. Yeah, there's a good slogan. If it's a one-off, lay off. Look for patterns. Look for the player making two or three of the same error and then intervene. And this happens, of course. Or look for a pattern amongst the team and then address it to the team. That's what you should save your messages for as a group. When you're talking to your team, your message, when it comes to improvements or things that the goal of the team striving to get better, areas of need, when you talk to your team, that should almost strictly be related to team errors that have a pattern of happening. That wraps up this week's episode. Better swing decisions, precision with decisions at the plate. Backpedal sprints, get those backpedal sprints going. So when you're forward sprints, you're doing steel jumps, you're, you're practicing your steals, stealing bases, backpedal sprints, get that involved. Also have that in your warmup. It should definitely be in your warmup. Backpedal for sure. So backpedal sprints, praise loud, critique soft as best you can. Praise loud, praise often, praise in a genuine way. Critique those physical errors in a soft way. Be firm if you need to, but critique in a soft way. And I guarantee overall your players as a whole, your team as a whole will respond better. So in next week's episode, next Tuesday, when we get together again, many people in the baseball coaching community talk about building connections with players, getting to know what makes each player tick. But many coaches ignore one major coaching strategy that is vital to accomplishing this goal consistently and successfully. There's one major coaching strategy that gets ignored often, and we're going to discuss how to avoid this and how to flourish with this in next week's episode. So I look forward to next week's get together as we discuss and get better at coaching. Until then, take care of your health, take care of your families, of course, and go out there, make the baseball community better, leave it better than you found it, get your team better, win more games with this information, with these strategies, win more games, have happier players, have a better environment. It's a win-win-win across the board, across the scoreboard, and across the roster. Y'all take care, and I'll catch you on the flip side. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.